You can't stop what God is doing. You can join what he is doing, but you can't be him. You can't stop what God is doing. You can join what he's doing, but you can't be him. What this means is that as you see persecuted Christians, you can always know that they're going to thrive. This also means that when you see radically divided people groups, you know that they can unite into God's kingdom. And it also means that anybody who tries to go in that kingdom and take the place of God is going to be rejected. We're going to see examples of all of these things as we continue through the book of Acts this week. And all of this will happen through the simple preaching of the gospel, which is actually shocking if you remember where we were at last week. Because last week we saw a theme begin to emerge. When the gospel is preached, results vary. And if you were here last week, you know the result did not seem anything like either growth or unity. Stephen, one of the assigned helpers to the church, preached the gospel and he was killed. The same gospel that we're going to hear this morning. That got him killed. What will happen this week? Well, the fallout of Stephen's murder begins today's story. This amazing church... This thing that's getting going, it's starting to care for the right people, it's really starting to pick up steam, it gets persecuted, and it gets scattered. But it won't stop what God is doing. It will send the gospel to new places, in fact. Let me read chapter 8, verses 1 through 4 of the book of Acts. And Saul approved of his execution. And the his is Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So the first thing the author Luke is telling us here is that God's kingdom thrives through persecution. And I alluded to that last week, but we're going to really dig in this week. So what's happening here? Look at verse 1. Under the approval of a powerful man named Saul, the church is scattered through Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. So this church, which has been taking care of widows and and running well, it kind of blows up. And they get shot out of a cannon without their leaders. How bad is this? Look at verse 2. Devout men bury Stephen. And it seems like a verse you might just sort of skip over because everything else seems even worse. But the word devout doesn't just mean that they're volunteering at the funeral. It doesn't just mean they're really good friends. 
You could actually translate that word a bit more like radical. Radical men bury Stephen. And if you think about it, Stephen was declared a public enemy. So these men, by burying Stephen, are risking their lives. Imagine that. Imagine going to a funeral knowing that it could kill you. Now imagine verse 3. This man Saul is breaking into homes and he's dragging Christians to prison. And as I said last week, we like to think of the spread of the gospel as a happy franchise expansion, don't we? We imagine church plants. We imagine fully funded missionaries, don't we? And that's not wrong. (laughs) Those aren't bad, but what do we have here? Well, we actually have everything going according to plan. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said this, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So he said, you'll go out, but he never said how. And this is how. So for right now, for this young church, here's what's happening. Things are going exactly as God intended. I know it sounds unbelievable. God has chosen to send out his people without the apostles. God has chosen to take Stephen. God has given Saul the power and ability to separate families and consign them to prison. All of that is under the power of God. So, I don't know how you would respond. But how do these Christians respond? Look at verse 4. As they are scattered, they go about preaching the word. No matter where they are, no matter who they're separated from, no matter how much they're in pain, the gospel just comes out of them. Wow. Here's the point. Persecution makes Christians thrive. How does this apply to us? We maybe aren't familiar with persecution on this level. We may hear about it or read about it in magazines. We should see the opportunity in persecution. That's our application, to see the opportunity in it. I mean, since the Great Commission here hasn't changed, this story... Maybe how some of you go on a mission trip. You may not feel ready. You may not particularly like where you're going. And you may not even know exactly where you're going. But if you know Jesus, according to this chapter, you have all you need to grow his kingdom. A few years ago, I was doing street evangelism in London. I shared it with you before. It was back in 2018. And I was picked to be a team leader because of my age and ministry experience. I don't know which one was leading that. 
But to be honest, most of my ministry experience up to that point was desk work and very measured discipleship. Now, there's nothing wrong with either one of those. But in terms of getting on the street and engaging people I'd never talked to, who may not necessarily like me or respect my title, well, on those streets I saw how much I was relying on my own strength rather than the Lord sending power. And the evidence for that is when people would confront me or they would ignore me or they would pressure me, well, I would just kind of falter. I didn't do very well. I remember on the first night counting the minutes until it was over. I don't know if you've ever been there before. Um, my roommate, a student on that trip, he had a similar experience. And uh, do you know what we did to fix our problem? We prayed. We prayed. We admitted our total need for God to change us and to change the people we were talking to. Here's what God did. Here's how God answered my prayer request. He didn't flip a switch to make me immune to pain. And he didn't make me immune or unaware of tension. What he did was actually better than that. He caused my desires to begin to shift. It's been a process. To see people brought into God's kingdom as better than my desire to be comfortable. That's the shift that happened. It's not about me being comfortable. It's about I look at those people and I think, man, these people need to hear the gospel. That's what was starting to drive me. Um, another way of saying it is that's what thriving looks like. It may not appear like thriving, but that's what it looks like. You see and feel the pain around you, still there, and you still lament as the these men did, but your motivation is God within you and your mission becomes to grow his kingdom and not to guard your own kingdom because this is better. That's how these people are thriving right here in these verses. That's why this part of Acts does not belong in the fiction section of your library. It's real. They know God himself is directing them and as we'll see as we continue, somehow this pain is actually going to result in the conversion of a whole city. And I might add, the last city they or we would have expected. So let me continue with chapter 8, verses 5 through 17. This is one of the men in the church. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. 
And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed, Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So the second thing Luke is telling us here is that the kingdom of God unites bitter enemies. So let me first introduce Philip, and then I'll give you a brief history of the Samaritans, and then we'll walk quickly through the story. And you might have, of course, heard, of, heard a little bit about a guy named um, Simon. I'll get to him last. I'll just introduce him briefly at the end, because he's going to be the focus of my third point. So first, who's Philip? Well, it seems he's another one of those seven helpers that were chosen to serve the church in chapter 3, specifically in verse 6. So he would have likely worked with Stephen and was endorsed and commissioned to help the church in a similar way. It's pretty likely. Who are the Samaritans? Well, we have to do a little history here. About a thousand years prior to this story, the kingdom of Israel split into two kingdoms in the book of 1 Kings chapter 12. The northern kingdom kept its name of Israel and included Samaria. To the south was a kingdom called Judah. And Jerusalem was there. Two kings. Do you see the divide happening already? Even worse, when both kingdoms were conquered later, the Samaritans intermingled with other kingdoms. And they were seen by Jews as half-breeds. So they avoided one another. A thousand years of cultural division. How could the Samaritans possibly enter the new kingdom? Well, Philip just walks in and preaches Christ. That's how it happens. No, really, look at verse 5. I just read verse 5. He just goes in and he preaches Christ. What is he, crazy? And I say that because of his connection to Stephen. Think about this in the context of what we just read last week. If his friend Stephen was just killed for preaching, what might the Samaritans do to him? We're going to those guys? And you think it's going to work? According to verse 5 through 8, they love him. It works. They love Philip. Verse 6 says, they're of one accord. This could very well mean the entire town. It could be hyperbole. But what we have here is a vast majority, if not all, of the entire city accepts Christ. They hear the gospel. Philip does signs and wonders first and healings. And the response in verse 8 is much joy. 
And in verse 12, they believe the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus, and they're baptized. It's not a magic show. It's explicit preaching of the gospel. And they believe it. And in verses 14 through 17, this brings the apostles from Jerusalem to lay hands and give them the Holy Spirit. And it's, it's amazing. But, ironically, since we're talking about division, let me pause there and address something that ironically has di- divided Christians. Um, why are there two baptisms? You ever hear that one? I was meeting with a guy about 10 years ago, and he, he told me if I hadn't had the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I wasn't a Christian. You guys ever hear that one? Um, there's some more Pentecostal bents that that's their conclusion, and they go to this verse. Um, because when if you think about a water baptism and a Holy Spirit baptism, it might seem to imply that the water baptism is like the weak one. Right? Like when we put people in there, it doesn't really do a whole lot. I mean, that's what this seems to be saying, right? Well, let me first encourage you that in every other instance of Acts, both of these events, both of these baptisms happen at the same time. You kind of don't separate them. It's not like one matters and one doesn't. Uh, so, but this right here seems to be sort of a special event. And the special event, I would think, I think, is that what's happening here is a, a lot more than a really great story about unlikely conversion or cultural unity or two baptisms. It's such an important event that the apostles have to come down for it. What's actually happening here is a reunion of those two kingdoms we just talked about. Let me just pause and write this down in your notes. Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 21 and 22. We're doing a little bit of a mouthful here, so just hang with me. This is back in the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 21 and 22 says this. God says this, Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone... And I will gather them from all around and I'll bring them to their own land. I will make them one nation in the land. On the mountains of Israel and one shall be king over them all. And they shall no longer be two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. That prophecy is Samaria. See the apostles coming for this other baptism, it's not like a leveling up. It's not like, oh, now you're Christians. It's more of a seal of authenticity by the apostles of Jesus. God has finally united the two kingdoms. The same Holy Spirit in one eight that sends you out, that's bringing these two kingdoms together. It's not some magic show. This is God at work. Do you understand? It's official. The Samaritans have the same Holy Spirit now that sent people like Philip through much persecution on a rescue mission to the nations. So all of them, they can do that now. They're in. They are in the kingdom. Samaria shows us that anything is possible. So how does this apply? 
see the opportunity in divided people. See opportunity in divided people. Let me be specific because even in the practice, I was way too general. It's just easy to do that. I want you to think about the people that you never want to talk to again. Think about the people that you never want to talk to again. Or the people who seem beyond hope. Maybe the people who have really hurt you. Maybe at the church you used to go to, you had a big blow up with some people you knew there, and you left, and you're here now. First off, that doesn't solve problems. <laughs> Do you think it's too late for those people? What about certain denominations? <laughs> what about the Pentecostal guys I just mentioned? Or maybe you came from an abusive family and you've promised yourself to never speak to them again. Now, I'm not telling you to go crawling back and nothing in your relationship changes. That's not what I'm saying. What this passage is telling you is that the reconciliation that God has in mind is on a level that the world simply can't offer or even understand. God's kingdom is open to anyone if it's open to Samaria. Or think of it this way. Um, I just want you to imagine, um, perhaps, as you're thinking through this, maybe it's that anyone can not only get in, but if God can bring the Samaritans back to his kingdom, what might he do with your family? Maybe think about it that way. Or your former friends. What might he do there? Or, if you have children who seem to have left the faith, what might he do there? It's not too late. If God's the one doing the changing. And if God's the one uniting the kingdoms. Samaria shows us that anything is possible. Even through tremendous persecution and unlikely scenarios. So to sum up so far, here's what's happened. Persecuted Christians in the face of a thousand years of segregation and false worships have united the Samaritans with God. It's quite the kingdom investment. That's a lot of work, wasn't it? Thousand years of waiting, persecution to get here. You got to guard that investment, don't you? I think that's worth guarding. It must not be allowed to corrupt. Only one king is on the throne of this kingdom. Not two kings, one king. Speaking of which, the Samaritans now worship King Jesus, but their old king is still there. And it seems like he might want his crown back. So never, no, let me now introduce that Simon fellow. 
I'm going to do that quickly here in these verses, just point out a few things, and then we'll see what happens to him in the third point. So in verse 9, during all this joy, there's a man named Simon, and he's just kind of lingering in the background of the story. Now he's a magician, and he has greatly amazed the people before Philip. He's a bit of a celebrity, or rather I should say he was a celebrity. Verse 10, if you look at that, tells us the people used to give him their attention. And they called him the power of God, but now they've seen the real thing. Simon appears to have followed suit in verse 13. It says he believes and is baptized. So that's where we're at. He's kind of lingered. He's gotten baptized. Everything seems cool. So now let me read verses 18 through 25 and look for what we can learn about Simon. See if it remains good. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, Give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours, of this wickedness, of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart might be forgiven you. For I see that you're in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you may have said may come upon me. Now, when they testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So the third and final thing that Luke is telling us here is that the kingdom of God is preserved by a holy standard. In contrast to maybe the magic show that we've seen through Simon. I mean, did you hear what Peter said to him in verse 20? Well, actually, verse 20, like for most of it, (laughs) kept going. He says, may your silver perish with you. The Greek literally says this, to hell with you and your money. That's what he says to Simon. What's he doing? (laughs) Why is he crashing the party? The story was so cool. Right? Could you imagine they're at a baptism and that just kind of happens? And everybody's like kind of looking. Could you imagine being here? Why'd Peter have to come and ruin a good party? Right? Peter keeps going. He says, your heart's not right. Verse 22, he tells Simon to repent. If possible, the Lord will forgive you. What is happening here? Well, I think that Peter is looking at a young celebrity, a man of great influence, and he's realizing the tremendous damage That can be done if he misses the gospel. In other words, 
Peter is not crashing the party. He is protecting the newly formed Samaritan church from a new king who might just try to divide the kingdoms again. So is he at least maybe being harsh in his wording? I don't think so if you then consider Stephen's response. Stephen's response here says a lot. Look at verse 24. He says, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you said may come upon me. There's two things very deeply wrong with that response. Number one, pray for me to the Lord? You just got baptized, Simon. This is not the language of a member of God's kingdom. He's speaking like an outsider. If the Holy Spirit is in you, you don't need somebody to pray for you. You do it. And beyond this, Simon doesn't even own up. You see what he says here? Seems like he just wants to avoid your punishment. He's like a child trying to bribe you. And when caught, the child just says, please don't punish me. That's not repentance. So there's a lot that should concern us about Simon. To be honest, I've thought a lot about what to conclude about the guy. I've, I've read stories about him becoming quite the heretic later in life, according to historians. Um, but I look, at, I look at verse 13 where it says he was baptized and believed. And I hold out hope. I don't know. I don't know. This is the last we hear of him in the scriptures. So if you want to chat more about Simon, we can do that. But for now, I'm going to move on because I think the point here is not Simon's response, but it's Peter's rebuke. And it is very appropriate. I mean, just consider the cost that God paid to build this new kingdom. So his son Jesus dies to unite these people. Um, this is not a business opportunity. Right? This is God's kingdom on earth and it must be defended. It must be preserved from corruption. And Simon's words, let me pay you that's corruption and you know beyond that think about it Samaria has been corrupted before right a lot I mean they were worshipping Simon literally right before Philip came you gotta be on guard this is a young church and bad things could happen so good work Peter I think this is church eldership done right. And happily, I think God rewards that. And this growth and standard continues. Look at verse 25. The gospel then continues to spread to the surrounding Samaritan villages. What are the results? We don't know. I'd like to think probably continued success. We'll see. So what would the, uh, what would the original audience conclude about all of this? 
Well, I think they would see that the kingdom of God is a thriving, point one, uniting, point two, holy, point three, rescue mission. So they're thriving, uniting, and holy. So it gets hit, gets hit hard, but it grows. And it reaches across cultural lines that nobody else can with a message that nobody else has. And finally, it does not grow through celebrity or theatrics, but it grows through a holy standard and it works hard to guard that standard. So how do we apply this uh, last point? I think a good application is for us to see opportunity in a holy standard. Because I don't know about you, but when I get tired or life gets hard, it is easy to want theatrics rather than holiness. So here's a couple of ways you can not only help me, but just grow in this area. Suggestions. There's tons of applications here, but here's, actually here's three. Number one, don't run from rebuke. Do not run from rebuke. Now, you don't have to get excited at the thought of hard conversations, like the ones Peter just has, just had, but I want you to please see that they're good. They are meant to refine the Christian to have a deeper love for Christ. There was love in what Peter said to Simon. And so one way you can pursue this is please, if you're considering membership, do that. Pursue it. Keep pursuing it. Run towards the church. Don't just kind of be off to the outside being a casual person. Pursue growth, which sometimes does involve conversations like this. A lot of times it doesn't. Sometimes it must. We want to help you thrive, is another way of putting that. Uh, number two, this is a good one. Hold leaders accountable. Hold leaders accountable. And the reason why I say that is because as a leader, I can attest to you that leadership is very difficult. There is so much internal and external pressures on the elders here, of which I'm one, to rely on things like celebrity and theatrics to fill seats rather than simply pursue holiness. It is so easy to just want to be like, eh, it's just too much, too many issues, too much trouble. It can be so tempting to do that. And that's actually why I love, we actually have multiple elders so that we can help each other be like, don't do that. (laughs) Just keep going, just press in. We love you guys. Just sharing with you. It's not as though it's a burden. It is a tremendous joy. But man, it's hard. And if you're ever in any leadership position, if you're a, a deacon here or you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. So easy to just let your kids just kind of check out and watch TV. But I think you know better, right? 
Uh, actually, there's um, one way we're fighting the pressure, just practical, because we understand kind of how power dynamics work. Um, here's one way where we fight that pressure here at Grace Fellowship that you might not know about, especially if you're not a member. Um, we actually have a policy, and it's on our members website. And it's, it's such that if you, if you know, if you see that the elders are not pursuing holiness... You know, if you've tried to reconcile and you're just like, man, something's wrong. There are actually local pastors that you can reach out to to make sure we're held accountable. We are giving you permission to do that because we want to be holy. Do you understand? If we were self-contained and we were convinced that you should worship our celebrity, we wouldn't have things like that in place. We would say, why do you hate us? We love you. So we want to offer that. We really want to make sure that you help us run the race well. Number three, when you struggle in persecution or evangelism or holiness, a.k.a. any of those three points I just mentioned, remember Jesus. Remember Jesus. Remember that Jesus was persecuted. Did he thrive? Yeah. I mean, he died and he was raised so that people separated from him by far more than a thousand years could be his friends. So yeah, I'd say he thrived. And he did that by living according to the holy standard which he calls us to. So in other words, the reason we're able to go out on mission is because he did. And that's actually what we're celebrating today with communion. 